What I want to talk to you about tonight is apologetics. And for those of you who don't know, the word apologetics is a conjugation and transliteration from a Greek word, apologia. comes from 1 Peter 3.15, or at least that's primarily where we go to. And that, that passage is the one that says, always be ready to give a reasoned defense for, or give a defense for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. So the, the word defense there is apologia. So another passage I want to give you, and, and I, I must say this will not be a real, though he made a real big emphasis on uh, we'll be preaching out of the word. I won't be preaching out of the word. I will reference the word, but mainly what I want to do is I want to talk about this reasoned defense idea. But let me give you another verse. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. That does sound like I'm preaching, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, so this is what apologetics is. And so where do we find that in the Bible? Absolutely everywhere. Everywhere Jesus speaks, he's doing apologetics. Everywhere the Apostle Paul or any of the apostles speak, everywhere the prophets speak, they're doing apologetics. So every time Paul entered a city, he would test y'all's biblical knowledge here. He would first go to the synagogue and do what? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> well, wait, somebody says Reasoned from the scriptures. That's what he did. So he would go to the synagogue and he would reason from the Old Testament to Jesus, the Christ, showing that how the Old Testament, what the Old Testament said was always pointing to Jesus. And he was doing the same thing in Athens. And then some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers kind of scooped him up and took him to the Areopagus, which was on Mars Hill. And they, they wanted to hear what he had to say, too, because he was bringing strange things to their ears, they said. And so what I want to do is just read to you a little bit of what Paul said here. This is from Acts 17, 22 and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. And I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship, Paul says, as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. He then delivers simple versions of the cosmological, the contingency, and the moral arguments using their own poets and their own philosophers. What's the point here? He starts with a common source of truth. And once he gets agreement, then he leads to the gospel. Then you start evangelism. But, for example, when Jesus says, if you don't believe me by my words, believe in the evidence of the works that I do, that's empirical apologetics. That's kind of what I want to do for you tonight. I want to prove to you certain things. And it's not so much that I want to prove to you. I want to prepare you to be able to prove this to others. Uh, in your generation, where you have the most influence, atheism is on the rise. You've probably noticed this, right? The statistics vary, but all of them, the median average is roughly 75% of the people who are in our youth groups graduate from the Christian religion when they graduate from high school. 75%. Three out of every four. 
Some of the studies have it up in the 90 percentile, some other had it down in the 60s, but whatever, it's, it's far too many. And they've done some exit surveys to ask why they're leaving the Christian faith. A lot of people would probably think, well, they're leaving the Christian faith because, um, you know, there are too many hypocrites there. That was the old thing that people said all the time. By the way, if, if, you, if you have a problem with hypocrites um, being in the church, then you're going to have the same problem everywhere else you go because we're all hypocrites in one way or another, right? But it's not that. For most of them, in one way or another, when they're asked open-ended questions in these exit polls, they all say something to the effect of, it's not true, or at least they can't prove it to be true. They say things like, and maybe you guys have experienced this yourself, in youth group, you ask a question and the, the, the pastor says, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that. That, that. We have faith here. Well, we may have faith. But, you know, I, you have faith in these chairs, obviously, right? You assume that they're going to hold you up. But that faith is based on your experience of all the chairs you've ever seen in the world, right? If you came in and you saw this chair and it was missing a leg and there were holes in the bottom, you would probably move on to the next chair because you don't have faith in that chair that it's going to sustain your weight. That's what the word pistis, faith, or pistuo, or any of the, any of the different conjugations of that word in the New Testament actually mean. It's trust in, Right? That's the kind of faith that we need to have, and that trust in is based on evidence. God did not leave us with an unevidenced faith, and he does not expect us to operate solely on our experience, not that experience is bad, or our emotions, and not that emotion is bad. But if you're going to be any use to those people out there that are walking away from the faith, you're going to have to have something more than your experience and your emotions, because by and large, that is white noise to those people. One of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, and I can say this because you guys are young enough, most of you don't know who he is, David Lee Roth. Anybody? A couple of people, all right, all right. So he had this to say, some go to women, some go to Jesus, but I'm absolutely certain both's all right. But it takes me at least halfway through the label. For I can even make it through the night. So, by the way, there's no charge for that. I wasn't even intending on doing it. I just got on a roll. So his point is, some go to women to find comfort and convenience and fulfillment. Some go to Jesus, and then he says, and that's okay, either one. But for him, it takes him halfway through a bottle of whiskey before he starts to feel that same comfort. In other words... You have your way of doing things. I have my way of doing things. You have your means of finding peace in this world. I have my means of finding peace in this world. In that context, if all you have are your emotions and your experience, they will turn you off or maybe at least just turn you down. So what you have to have is some reason behind what you believe. And I want to make you effective in approaching these people that you guys no doubt interact with regularly on this campus. So... I want to start with the two, my favorite two arguments. I'm going to briefly introduce them. Um, they are the cosmological argument and the moral argument. The cosmological argument reasons from the existence of the cosmos, that is the universe. When God so loved the world, he so loved the Greek word cosmos, right, which is the universe and all that was in it. But there in particular, that's a bad example, because there in particular he has in mind mankind. The context dictates that. But the cosmos is used frequently in the New Testament. 
The idea that the universe exists requires some kind of an explanation. We reason from the effect back to the cause. What could possibly explain the existence of the universe? That explanation is God. The moral argument says that essentially this, if objective moral values exist, then God must exist. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Now, I used to not super love, I'm throwing that word in because it's a very academic word, super love. There's a hyphen there. I used to not super love the, the moral argument because it doesn't prove that God exists. It only proves that if moral values exist, then God must exist. Here's the thing, though. What didn't occur to me until, I don't know, a few years ago, actually was when we had that uh, panel debate and everybody just flew off the handle at the idea of morality. I went, okay, we're on to something here. You, you should have seen it. I, I really thought we were going to need the police. Me and, me and Taji were set up in Christian love, ready to take some folks out. It was getting rough in there. The atheists were not happy with uh, what we were saying, but what it occurred to me that the thing we know most are our moral intuitions. And so, though it is not the same kind of argument that's deductive or math-like in some sense that proves the existence of God, it's something that's very close to our heart. All right, so with that, the cosmological argument kind of goes like this. I'm going to give you a really simple, quick version of it. Um, I say it's simple and it's quick. If you're not used to thinking philosophically, some of it may sound a little strange. Um, for people like Roger back there, who's a master philosopher, our, our current president, it, it, he's going to be like, oh my gosh, can you get on to something that's halfway interesting to me? But, but if you're not used to it, it may come across as a little strange the way I'm talking, but it's really fairly simple, all right? So it kind of goes like this. Regardless of what anyone wants to think about the existence of God, you and I are here. Can I get an amen on that? We all agree that we're all here, right? And we're caught up in a causal chain. That is a chain of events that's being propagated by cause and effect. Now, all that means is I have parents. You all have parents. They had parents. They had parents. All the way back to the first parents, whatever or whoever they were. This causal chain must have had a beginning, for if it had no beginning, it would extend into the past indefinitely, infinitely. But if it extended infinitely into the past, an infinite number of moments and events should need pass for us to arrive at this moment. Now, question, how long does it take to traverse an infinite number of moments? Can you ever traverse fully an infinite number of moments? So the fact that we are here right now establishes that there was not an infinite number of prior moments. Does everybody follow that? If I'm going fast, raise your hand and, and ask a question, and I'll try to explain it more. Because, again, I know this sounds weird. We don't usually think this way. All right, so what this means, then, is there was a beginning to this causal chain. So now I want us to think about this causal chain that we're in, this causal chain with a beginning. If thing four was created by thing three, and thing three was created by thing two, and thing two was created by thing one, well then whatever thing one is, it's eternal. It's uncaused. It would have to be 
if it's the first thing. Otherwise, thing one would have a cause, and that cause would need precede its effect, right? And then we'd have to ask, well, what caused this thing? And now where are we going? To an infinite number of causes, which we've already said. Just so you know, for any of you guys who are math majors, infinity exists in math and in math alone. Infinity cannot explain a world with finite entities. I'll give you an example of that. If you have an infinite number of, or infinite series of whole numbers, one, two, three, four, five, all right, going on to infinity, and you remove all the odd numbers, subtract them, take them away, how many numbers do you still have in your set? An infinite number of numbers. So you actually took infinity, you subtracted infinity from infinity, which you would think would give you zero, but you still have infinity, right? It only works in mathematical concepts. It cannot work in a finite world dealing with finite entities. Um, so whatever this first thing was, it was eternal. Now, many have thought in one way or another that this first thing was probably the universe itself. Right? In some way or in some part, it was the universe itself. Now, we've already seen philosophically that this is impossible. But we have a huge compendium of science data to support that philosophical claim. I mean, you have Einstein's general theory and a massive number of subsequent experiments which all say the same thing. The universe is expanding. Interesting thing, Einstein comes up with a theory and doesn't like it. He proves it mathematically, but he doesn't like the idea of an expanding universe. You're gonna find out why in just a second. And so he fudges his own math with something he called the cosmological constant. One of the smartest men ever divides by zero. And he calls this the cosmological constant. Why? Because now the universe doesn't have to be expanding. It's static, it's constant. And that's what he liked. Why? Well, because if you roll that cosmic clock backward in time, this expanding universe becomes less expansive. And the farther back you roll it, the less expansive it becomes until you finally arrive at a point prior to the existence of the universe. The universe came into existence at one point in the distant past. Now, effects all have causes. Whatever brought the universe into existence was independent of and outside of, external to, the universe itself. I mean, if, just imagine it this way. Let's just for a second, let's say I'm that first thing. I'm thing one. I'm the initial cause, the thing that's going to cause the universe. If the universe doesn't exist yet, I have to exist prior to it to bring it into existence, right? So do I need the universe for my existence? Because it doesn't exist yet, and I do. Therefore, whatever the first cause is, it exists prior to and independent of the universe, which makes it sort of extra-universal or outside of the natural order. Now, if something's outside or above the natural order, what do you think we should call that? supernatural. Since time comes into existence at the beginning of the universe, whatever was outside of and independent of the universe brought time into existence. Therefore, this cause is outside of time or is eternal. So our philosophical argument lands in the same place that our scientific argument lands. We need something outside of the natural order 
to bring the natural order into existence. And whatever this thing is, is also outside of time and therefore timeless or eternal. So we've used no scripture. We've appealed to no religious experience, no feelings, no shivers up our spine or leg. What we've done is we've just used basic logic and a little bit of science to show that because the universe exists, there must be a supernatural eternal cause. Now, there are a number of arguments that I could use to make this, to, sh- to show you that this cause is personal as well. I'm going to, to use the moral argument. It's not the, it's not the argument I would usually use. I would use the fine-tuning argument, or Taji likes to use the argument of choice, a free agent, so there would have to be a free agent to choose to take um, a continuous existent of nat- existence of natural causes, or, or I'm sorry, the absence of a continuous existence of natural causes and bring those natural causes into effect. That requires a choice. That requires free will. All of these arguments are really complicated, and I just don't have that much time. So I'm going to go to the moral argument, and as I said, there, these two arguments, I think, are most powerful for two reasons. One, any atheists you come in contact with, first of all, they're just people just like us, right? And hopefully, they're actually trying to figure out what's true, what's real, like us. Any one of them, you're going to have commonality here. Hey, we're on the third rock from the sun. It exists. How do we explain it, right? Everybody can start there. And it's really simple, really easy. If there is a universe, and here's here's another good way to think of this. If anything exists, there's only three ways to explain the existence of that thing. It either came into existence as it was caused by something else, or it has always existed, or it was created by, or it created itself. Now that last one is philosophically untenable, which is just a fancy way of saying stupid. Nothing can create itself because it would have to be before it was. It would have to exist and not exist at the same time and in the same way. So that one's out. So you're left with only two possible ways to explain the existence of anything. Whatever exists, this is a really weak form of the contingency argument. Whatever exists, exists because it was created by something else or it has always existed. Well, get back to the conversation we just had. Thing one, thing four, thing three, thing two, thing one. My parents, your parents, their parents. You eventually get back to the first thing that was created. And whatever the cause of that was cannot be created. Every way we try to look at these arguments, we end up with the same conclusion. And just so you know, this is not me just speaking in a room with a bunch of Christians. I I give these arguments. I have debates with atheists all the time. Some of them public, some of them not. In fact, if you want to see one of them, I debated the the, uh, head of the philosophy department here at UTA. His name was Kenneth Williford, really great guy. You can see that online. You look up my name, Ken Bankson, or Ken Williford. I think it was called Why I Am, Am Not a Christian. You can also see another little video, which is just the first 15 minutes of an intro, which gives a lot of these arguments a little more in depth and a little more to it. It was called Defeating Atheism in 15 Minutes. If you want to just go on there and look at that. These are arguments that I give to people who are much smarter than me. And they can't defend their position. They can't because their position is untenable. It's philosophically untenable. Okay. So, um, again, your, your atheist friends, everyone can identify with this argument because you're not, you're just talking about reality, not religion, right? And I, I don't want to suggest there's anything wrong with religion, but your atheist friends are going to hear your religious stories as white noise. 
here you start where they are, like Paul reasoning in the synagogue with these people. You start where they are and lead them to where they need to go. Okay, so enough of that. We're going to move on to the moral argument. And then at the end, hopefully we'll have enough time and I'll answer any questions you have that I can. I will not sing anymore, though. <laughs> which, which no one was going to ask for anyway, probably. Pay me not to sing. All right. Now, this part, I, I, I actually was hoping to have a PowerPoint presentation, but I just have been really busy this week. I actually produced this version of the moral argument today um, and just got finished right before I headed up here. So I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, and I'm going to kind of be reading through this because otherwise I won't have any idea what I'm talking about. We actually are going to be hearing it for the first time together. All right? So with that, um, did anybody do anything really cool for the fourth? Hand up. What would you do? Okay, that's fantastic. I doubt seriously anybody can top that. That's crazy, but fantastic. Okay, so so what? Why do we celebrate the fourth? What is this holiday about? America. Be more specific. Freedom. That's good too. Independence Day. Why do we celebrate it on July fourth? There we go. 1776, July 4th, we signed the Declaration of Independence. What was this? What was the purpose of this document? You said you said it kind of, independence and freedom, right? So it was to yes, it was to proclaim the independence of the 13 colonies from the British, right? So there's one line that your school should have made you memorize. Everybody was supposed to memorize this. It's in the teaks, people. I know you were supposed to memorize it if you went to school in Texas. What was the line that you were supposed to memorize? We want the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Not it. <laughs> that's the Constitution. But I like that. I like where you're going with it. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Right? Y'all remember it now. You're like, oh. We hold these truths to be self-evident that what? Are created equal. All right? Note those words. And are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, why is it do you think that Thomas Jefferson et al. used those words? Why, why is it that he, he said that we are endowed by our creator with these rights rather than we hold these rights in our citizenship of the United States of America. Anybody? That's true. That's what he was saying. If the government gives you your rights, if the government confers rights upon you, what can the government also do? Take them right away. Right Now, these rights, he's saying, cannot be taken away. Why? He's saying they're inalienable, which means they cannot be alienated from you. Why? Because we were created by God with that in what we are as human beings. We're created in his image. They understood that. They understood that what 
human beings are, by virtue of the fact that they're human beings, entails them certain rights that cannot be separated from them. Now, people can abuse you of your rights, as King George was abusing the colonies of, them, of their rights, but there's something wrong. They do something wrong when they do that, right? They can abuse you of your rights, but when they do so, they are violating some moral standard. This is because rights, and by the way, those of you who are taking down notes, I probably should have been doing this all along, but I'm going to try to be better about this. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. Rights are derivative of morality. So we say that you have the right to life. I am then obligated not to kill you, right? Right? I mean, it puts an obligation on me. So rights are derivative of morality. If you have no morality, then you, ha you have no rights. This is one of the reasons this is such a powerful argument today. In our culture today, everyone is screaming about their rights, right? But if those rights exist, a morality exists that gives those rights their power. And the type of rights you have are dependent on the type of morality that you have. So, conversely, if you have no moral obligation, which circumvents me killing you, right, then I can kill you and I've done nothing wrong. Not that I would, just, just trying to, you know, express the point. Today, people are constantly screaming, as I said, about their rights, the right to free speech, the right to free health care, the right to free school, sexual expression, choice of gender, choice of bathroom, and on and on. Everyone today is demanding their rights, which is going to make this argument so much more powerful. Setting aside our individual positions on these aforementioned rights as declared, what would be necessary for any of these rights to actually exist? I just told you. So let's see if you're listening. Morality, a moral standard. A moral standard that says thou shalt not kill obligates me not to kill you and therefore gives you the right to life. Right? So if there is no God, where does this moral standard come from? People. It's just us, right? If there is no God, then we made it up. Right? So if there is no God, this moral standard that we're talking about is a codification of our preferences. I prefer that you not kill me. Now, am I obligated? If you say chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream, am I obligated to believe along with you that chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream? Obviously not, because vanilla ice cream is the best ice cream. This ought to be obvious to everyone. This is why I said the type of morality you have will determine the type of rights that you have. If this morality is a standard that we created, then the rights that you have are merely your preferences. I prefer, in fact, let me just, let me, I want to I read it because I'll mess it up otherwise. I wrote something down here that I thought was pretty good. Oh, actually, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me get back here on track. Um, All right, so in a sense, if, if, I, if I say you don't have the right to kill me because I have the right to life, 
and someone else says, no, 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 I want you dead, the question would then be, well, who's right? Because it's just our preferences, right? And the answer would be, we're both right and we're both wrong. We're both right in the sense that when I say I don't want to die, that accords with my personal preference. And when he says, well, I want you dead, well, that accords with his sick and twisted personal preference. But neither one of us have an objective statement to be made. Neither one of us can claim that. So in other words, if I say it would be wrong for you to kill me, no, it would just be in discord with my preferences. Right? You see how weird and jacked up that is? If you start talking about relative morality, it's a real problem. All right, so when people are demanding the rights, they are making the claim that they are owed something and that this should be obvious to everyone and that everyone is obligated to respect their claim and provide for them what is owed. And I want to restate that again, and if you're taking notes, I would write that down. When people are demanding their rights, they are making the claim that they are owed something, that you owe them something. And that this should be obvious to you and to everyone else. So when people are demanding their rights, they are making the claim that they are owed something and that this should be obvious to everyone else. And that everyone is obligated to respect their claim and to provide them with what they're owed. So instead of saying, I prefer that contraceptives be made available to me for free, they are saying, I have a right to free contraceptives, and you are obligated to provide them to me. See the distinction? In fact, when people are on TV or when people are on campus, then they're saying, I have a right to this. I have a right to health care. Then you need to ask the question, am I obligated to pay for your health care? Right? Now, I, I'm not trying to get political here. I'm just saying this is a way to filter through this question of rights. Do you have a right to health care such that I'm now obligated to pay for it? And if that's not the case, then what we're talking about is a want, and not a bad want, but it's a want, not a right. So it doesn't mean that we can't get together and say, hey, let's, let's provide everybody with health care. Again, I'm not trying to get political here. I'm simply saying it's not a right unless I'm obligated to provide it for you. All right? Here's another example, much more familiar. You're driving down the road. You're in the turn lane, maintaining the speed limit, listening to worship music, of course, <laughs> quietly with your windows rolled up. And just at that moment, a car comes. That was right on time, whoever that was. Fantastic. We're building up to that suspenseful moment right there. So just at this moment, a car speeds by you, cuts you off, such that you have to slam on your brakes just so he can get into the turn lane. And as you're slamming on your brakes, screeching to a halt, he provides you with a friendly finger gesture. Are you, are you angry at this point? I'm, I'm really angry at this point. And the old me would have bumped him with my car. That's, that's the old me. That was a long time ago. It was before Christ. It was B.C. <laughs> I want you to think about why you're angry. It's not just that you lost 20 feet. 
It's not that you lost a little rubber on your tires. All of this stuff might make you a little bit angry. But what really chaps your hide is that you and he operate with full knowledge that what he did was wrong. What he did was wrong. He knows it. He did it anyway. And it ticks you off. Right? What this means then is that, and, and by the way, it's not just you in this situation that agree with that. Everybody agrees with that. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, the one absolutely universal moral truth with no, no equivocations and no stipulations is this. Cutting in line is always wrong. <laughs> every culture, every nation, cutting in line is wrong. All right? Mere Christianity, fantastic book. If you hadn't read it, go out and get it. He knew what was wrong, you knew what was wrong, and you are both under that moral standard, which means that moral standard is outside of you. That's why he knew it, and that's why you knew it. And what you mean is that what he did was not just against your preference, but what he did was actually wrong. And my guess is he absolutely knew it was wrong, which is why he gave you the obscene finger gesture, because he's an idiot. We can call him that because it's a hypothetical. I can make up whatever name I want. He's an idiot. <laughs> All right. So when, when the people that you talk to say things like this, this guy cut me off and it was wrong, what they're doing is they're appealing to an objective moral standard, a moral standard that is outside of themselves judging them and judging everyone else. Again, you might want to write this down. Things that are objective are not dependent on the preferences or the understanding of the subjects. We are the subjects. Right? Things that are objective are not dependent upon my understanding or my opinion. Subjective things, by contrast, are merely the personal notions or preferences of subjects. Subjective things, by contrast, are merely the personal notions or preferences of subjects. And this is an, maybe an easier way to remember this. And I think this is really good. You can judge me on this, Roger. I made it up today, so it could be stupid. I think right now it's good, though. <coughs> I may change my mind, but y'all will never know, which is bad for y'all. So, all right, thank you. Objective is outside the subject and imposes itself on the subjects. So if there's an objective moral law, it's not my personal subjective preference. It's outside of me, and it demands that I obey. It imposes itself on me. Subjective is stuck inside. Stuck inside the subject, and get this. It's irrelevant to anyone and everything outside of you. Now, that doesn't mean that your mom doesn't care that you feel bad. But your mom's not obligated to do whatever you want her to do because you feel bad, right? It's saying that your subjective feelings are inside you, and they control nothing outside. But objective is outside, and it imposes itself on you. What do you think, Roger? Get back with me later on that. I, I, I see some hesitation there. So if someone says... There cannot be a God because there's too much evil in the world. They're appealing, and you've probably heard that. 
It's called the problem of evil. They are appealing to an objective evil. This is an evil that's out there, right? Talking about things that should not be happening that we're all supposed to recognize, and it's bad. And we all should recognize it. I get this. We do the activity fair here. I haven't been able to do it the past couple of years because of work. But I love it. I love it. We get all kinds of people, some, some godly people, some really, f- my favorite parts, the atheists. We, and and they're, they're all, there is no God. There's too much evil. What do you mean by evil? I mean, these are horrible things that shouldn't be happening. Do, am I supposed to recognize them as bad too? Of course you are. People are dying. Malaria. So you're not talking about your personal preference that this is bad. You're saying these things are really bad. Yes, you idiot. He calls me idiot too. And I say, so if there's an objective evil out there, wouldn't that mean that there's an objective moral standard out there? Ooh, what do you mean by objective? We had this little conversation, and then I go, if there's an objective moral standard, from where does the standard come? Can't come from us. Remember? It's just our preferences. We make this stuff up as we go. I mean, we do. I mean, slavery was evil, then it was good, then it was evil again. You know, this kind of stuff, abortion was evil, then it's good. Now we're being told that if you are against abortion, you are evil. It's craziness what's going on. So we change. But if there is such a thing as an objective moral standard, it's outside of us and it doesn't change. And if there is objective evil, then there is an objective moral standard. This person then wants you to think that these events, these activities, these things are evil regardless of what you think, regardless of what anybody else thinks. God cannot exist, this person thinks, because there exists this objective evil. But as I said, if there is objective evil, there's an objective moral law. So what's necessary for morality to be objective? Remember, objective is outside of us, subjective is inside of us. Well, moral law would need to be more than just our preferences, certainly. How would we explain a moral law that is out there imposing itself on us? Some will want to claim, and so I'm going to give you, this, this conversation could be a lot longer. Oh, my gosh, I'm already out of time. It's 9 o'clock. All right, doggone it. That's killing me. I had about uh, 15 more minutes. Um, Let me then. uh, I will if y'all are okay with it, but I I mean, if y'all want to and have people leave, it's fine with me. I'll keep going. Whatever y'all want me to do. What does the leader say? Okay. Well, yeah, we'll think nothing less of you, but we will take your names down. There are repercussions. Um, guys, sorry I didn't effectively use my time. I don't know what happened. Um, all right, so some of the people you're going to talk to when they start trying to explain where this morality comes, if, if they're, imagine this. Imagine you're trying to, someone is trying to prove to you that God doesn't exist and that the Bible is full of errors, right? You're going to resist them. Because you believe this strongly, that God exists, that you know him, that the Bible is reliable. So you're going to resist. Try to have some compassion on the person you're talking to because they're going to want to resist as well. 
you're telling them now that there is a God and he has some say over how you act. And they're not going to like that very much. And so they're going to try to make up excuses. That was uncharitable. I shouldn't say make up excuses. But they're going to try to figure out ways around to explain this without God. How about that? So one of the things that they're going to say is um, that that evolution can explain morality. They're going to say that... uh, this moral law is the consequence of a blind evolutionary process, this blind evolutionary process that created humanity. Neo-Darwinianism, biological evolution, is false. And y'all can have me back some other day. I would love to go into that. I, I've done a lot of work on that. It is false. Uh, it is provably, demonstrably false. Now, there may be some other explanation, but Neo-Darwinism is absolutely, without question, false. But Obviously, we don't have time to go into that, so um, I don't need that to be false to prove that biological evolution cannot produce objective morality. So, for example, biological evolution deals with the random mutation of nucleotides over time, given natural selection, producing variation in molecules such that the organism with these variant molecules are either better or worse adapted to its environment. Those that are better adapted to its environment are able to produce a greater number of offspring. I'm not saying that that's false, all right? I'm saying that speciation is false, by the way. I believe that that is true, exactly as I stated it. The question, though, is can this physical process, and it is physical all the way down, can this physical process ever produce morals? Morals are non-physical. All philosophers of mind and philosophers of biology, almost all, you can't ever say all for anything, but almost all recognize that this is fallacious. This is impossible. This doesn't work. But that hasn't trickled down to the average guy when they're trying to, you know, get out of this idea of objective morality. So they will say, well, you know, it it was a consequence of our biological evolution. In principle, this, can, this cannot be true. Secondly, though, there's another even better reason to recognize this is false. We can only be obligated to other persons. I cannot be obligated to that chair. Now, if somebody gave me that chair, I could be obligated to take good care of the chair because of my obligation to this friend, right? But I'm not obligated to the chair. I'm not obligated to the floor. Much less am I obligated to nucleic acids mutating in my DNA. That's just lunacy. So I cannot be obligated to inanimate objects. I can only be obligated to persons. If my biological evolution is supposed to give me morality, what is it that I'm obligated to? The the biological evolution is, again, the mutation of my DNA over time which produces molecules better advantaged to my environment, which allows me to reproduce for a longer period of time. That's all it is, right? So I'm not obligated to my molecules, so what is it I'm obligated to? Because all morality entails obligation. Again, we talked about that, right? If you have a right to life, I'm obligated not to kill you, and vice versa. Some might want to argue that this physical process does not need to remain purely physical, This is confused, to say the least, but 
The way this is usually argued is by claiming that, and some of this y'all may not recognize, and if not, then, you know, it's like chicken. Just eat the part you like, throw the bones away, right? The way this is usually argued is by claiming that as a consequence of quantum indeterminacy, we get property dualism. But even the Copenhagen theory of quantum mechanics, even if this were true, this process depends on the laws of chemics, chemical physics and chemistry, which means it's determined, which means you don't have free will and you can't have morality without free will. So even if it was based on some quantum indeterminacy, if, even if the Copenhagen theory of quantum mechanics were true, it still does not give you morality. Further, you can't, the, the amount of indeterminacy, even if the Copenhagen theory is true, is so minimal, there's no way to explain consciousness on that amount of indeterminacy. It, I'm going to move on, because I know a lot of you guys don't understand that, but for those of you who do, you're welcome. All right. Some might want to argue that this is not biological evolution that gives us this morality, but we're talking about, and you'll hear this, my gosh, you'll probably hear this every time it comes up, that we're talking about social evolution. So people get together and they decided what worked best for them for a society to construct a, a, a good, functioning, healthy society. Ironically, usually those people who give you this argument will say that the basis of all secular morality is this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Isn't that odd? They go back to Jesus' words. Now, some of them will state it differently, especially if they've been uh, educated to stupid. Um, they will say, do nothing to willfully cause suffering or avert the flourishing of sentient beings. There are a number of problems with this, not the least of which we are simply back to preferences again. It, you're telling me that we shouldn't do anything to harm sentient beings and we should actually help them flourish. Says who? Says you. I mean, even if all of us agree on it, that doesn't, that doesn't make it objectively true. It's still just all of our preferences, right? We had a conversation with um, uh, an atheist not too long ago about this, and it went long into the night, and it was really funny. Um, in the end, he just punted to a, what's called a tautology. A tautology is, uh, you, so during the, uh, the Pride Month, you heard over and over again, love is love. Okay, so you've told me absolutely nothing. It's like saying a bachelor is an unmarried man. What is your point, right? A tautology is, is essentially an axiom, something that must be true. So if he's saying, this, this our, our friend, he's a good guy, he's a really good guy, I have nothing bad to say about him, but he just got beat up to the point at the end where he goes, okay, well, it's just a tautology. What do you mean? It's just an axiom. We just have to agree with it. And I go, but, but why? Why should I obey something that just exists? Like I'm going to obey the number two. You know, I mean, what the heck are you talking about, <laughs> right? All right, so again, if there are objective moral rights, or if there is objective evil, there must be an objective moral law. What then is necessary for morality to be objective? Moral, this by the way, if you've written down nothing yet and you do have pen and paper handy, write this down. Part of this, I'm absolutely certain I stole from William Lane Craig, one of my old professors, and then part of it I think is mine, but at this point I don't know anymore. Moral prescriptions and prohibitions arise in response to imperatives from a legitimate moral authority. 
In the absence of such an authority, all such prescriptions and prohibitions may safely be ignored. So I'm going to say that again, and then I'm going to explain it. Moral prescriptions and prohibitions arise in response to imperatives from a legitimate moral authority. In the absence of such an authority, all moral prescriptions, look, they're just working away over there and I'm going too fast, I know it. In the absence of such an authority, all moral prescriptions and prohibitions may safely be ignored. Now, what that means is moral prescriptions and prohibitions, things that you ought do and ought not do, are the consequence of imperatives, which are commands, either stated or implied, by a legitimate moral authority. If there is no authority, then there are no commands. That's pretty simple, right? If there are no commands, there's nothing that you must do, right? In the absence of such an authority, all such prescriptions and prohibitions may safely be ignored. If the universe is just such a universe that has entailed in the fabric of the universe these moral ideas, and I can't be obligated to the universe, but only to persons, then I can't be obligated to this morality. So this morality isn't really morality. It's like the number two. It's just a statement, which has no implication on me whatsoever. All right, so I, I gave you that because I know that these are some of the arguments you will come up against. And now I'm skipping over all the stuff that I knew would be too long and just going to tell you that this has been the moral argument. And I want you to understand briefly what is necessary. This won't take but about a couple of minutes. In order for objective morality to exist, there must be a transcendent moral law that adjudicates all actions among all of us. In other words, that stands in judgment over our actions, all of our actions, all of human actions. If this transcendent moral law does not exist, there is no objective morality. If there is no objective morality, you don't have rights, you have preferences. Now think about how powerful that is to some of your friends who say, I have a right to whatever. Mm, hold on a second. Now, you'll notice that most of the people out there screaming about their rights also don't believe God exists. Most of those people. And I'm, I'm not trying to slam them. I'm simply stating facts as I see them. If you know of a bunch of other people that are different, then ignore that. But that's what I see. If, if you have friends that are saying, I have a right to this, and they also don't believe in God, then you need to start asking them, well, what gives you that right? And talk to them about morals or rights being derivative of morality and the type of rights you have, are they objective or are they subjective? Th that type is dependent on the type of morality you have. Is that morality objective or subjective? Now, what is necessary? Well, you need a person to be obligated to. It can't just be a moral code, even if it's transcendent. It'd be like if, if you had wallpaper, if this was all wallpapered with the Ten Commandments, but the Bible wasn't true, then it's just words on the wall. You're not obligated to obey any of it, right? They're just words. It's just abstract knowledge. It's only if there's a person behind it to whom you are obligated that there's any power in the morality. So you need not only a transcendent moral law, get his name down, but you need, <laughs> have a good night, man. 
You need not only a transcendent moral law, but you also need a transcendent moral law giver. Okay? So I have gone now 12 minutes over, and I'm sorry about that. Um, I do want to say that this is especially useful in your generation, and I think that you guys are up against something that no one has ever been up against before in the history of mankind. I mean, I, I can stand up here and say I'm a seven-foot Chinese woman who's 200 years old, and I get to choose uh, the pronouns you will use. That, that kind of nonsense has never been tolerated in the history of humankind. You say that kind of stuff in Rome, they just cut your head off and move on. You don't, you don't get to say that anywhere else, but now we can say those things. So you guys are dealing with this relativism such has never been seen in the history of mankind. And I, I, I have great sympathy for you. I'm in it with you, but, I mean, you guys are facing this with a lot of young people that, that I don't have to uh, deal with that often. I deal with them here on campus, but then I get to go home. Right? You guys, every day is like this. And I'm not on social media. Thank the Lord in heaven because that's all that happens there. Right? So my point is this. When someone proclaims their rights, understand that what they're, what they're suggesting to you is that they have objective moral rights, which requires an objective morality, which requires a transcendent moral law and a transcendent moral lawgiver. In the absence of of that moral lawgiver, there are no rights, there is no morality, you could ignore the whole thing, all right? So I know that went long and some of this is probably confusing, but hopefully y'all picked up some stuff and it will be useful to you, all right? Thank you guys very much. You see that? I almost, I almost made a huge mistake. You guys have a great night. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so we're gonna pray which is always a good way to end, and I, I generally forget it, don't I, Taji? Taji usually reminds me, though. By the way, uh, Ratio Christie, if you're interested, I don't know if we've determined the date yet. Obviously, we don't want to do anything that conflicts with Merge, but we'd love to have you over there. Um, where we talk about these kinds of things, we have a little more time, and there's a little more interaction and question and answer and that kind of stuff. Ratio Christie is Latin for the reason of Christ. It's an apologetics ministry. Um, focus is equipping Christians to be able to go out into the marketplace and do this, right? Okay, so let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the time that we've had here together tonight. I pray, Father, that the, the words that came out of my mouth would be uh, only effective in that they speak what you wish them to hear. I pray that all those in attendance, Father, take away from here tonight something that you can use for your glory to bring about um, to bring about a greater uh, accumulation to your kingdom. Father, we pray that you would grow your kingdom. We pray that you would grow us as a body, grow us in our minds, grow us in our souls. We pray that you would change us from one measure of glory to another by not just experiencing you, though that is the ultimate, but also by learning how to understand you and understand how then to speak to others about you. Father, we, we pray for safety for everyone here, that they would go home, and we pray, Lord, that you would cultivate these ideas in their mind tonight as they sleep. We pray these things, Father, in your Son's name who saves. Amen.